Good morning. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds for March 5th, 2014. A, um, hopefully people have their clickers, and if not, I can send some around for audience response, audience participation response. It's March 5th. Um, just a reminder that this evening at Kellogg Auditorium, 5.30 p.m., uh, Geisel School of Medicine at Dartmouth, of which we are the Department of Pediatrics of the Geisel School of Medicine, the faculty meeting has been called, and I therefore hope to see as many of you as possible can make it tonight up at the medical school. Um, these are uh, transformative times for Geisel, as well as Dartmouth, Hitchcock, and Chad, and I think all participation in all these initiatives is only going to make us um, achieve our goals better and not let these uh, things happen outside our control uh, as best we participate. So. Hope to see you. I um, want to get back to something I had only done with fits and starts and remind people on some kudos. I get lots of good emails uh, fairly consistently, and so I wanted to just share one feedback that I had gotten a few months ago for a boy treated at Chad for Burkitt's. And uh, I got a note from Viking Hedberg, who many of us know, who wanted to share that his parents were extraordinarily thrilled with the care Chad provided, particularly singled out Sarah Chaffee. Jack Van Hoff and Omar Buta for their remarkable compassion, commitment to his well-being and professionalism. And Viking notes that it is a privilege to work with such colleagues. And, uh, and I agree. I think we all do. So thank you, Omar and, Buta, and, and Jack is here. And I know that Sarah, I thought, was coming along. We are excitedly um, in our march. And so it is resident, graduating resident Grand Rounds time. In addition to your audience response clickers, hopefully people receive little pieces of paper so that we can give constructive feedback to our graduating residents on a major presentation, which they may be doing in their future lives as well. We have our first, and we have three, I think, uh, two other presentations this month of residents. I think Sam House is coming up, and next month, next week is? Erin. Erin is next week, and, and Sam is the, fall, is the fourth week of the month. So. Um, Satya has decided to be brave. Perhaps it's appropriate that Satya is going to emergency medicine. He's going to kick us off and be the first one. Dr. Subramaniam, who we often call Dr. Subar or Dr. Satya, but Dr. Subramaniam is a graduating resident, hopefully, coming up here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Satya, you're good. Well, he's got to finish this, among other things. He's got to get through uh, Satya joined us in, in 2011 after having completed service in the National Health System, National Health Service in Great Britain, upon completion of his medical degree at the uh, University of Glasgow. He was also a graduate of University College London for his bachelor's, and he is, he is going to start his Pediatric Emergency Medicine Fellowship in July, and I'm blanking on which city. Oh, and New York City. At SUNY Downstate in New York City, so big city emergency medicine. So I think uh, not much is gonna is gonna um, uh, is gonna shake his confidence. So ultrasound making ways in the pediatric ED. All right. Good morning, everyone. Today I'll be talking to you about the ultrasound and its uses in uh, pediatric emergency medicine, but also broadly covering some of its uses in critical care and its potential applications in the pediatric clinic. These are my objectives. I'll be talking you through the history of the ultrasound, 
identifying some of its users and the evidence behind uh, the clinical applications of the ultrasound. And we'll anticipate what the future will look like uh, for the ultrasound and its potential uh, factors that may dictate how it goes. I have no conflicts of interest to declare. And I'll start off with a case to prompt us to think about what we already know about the ultrasound. So here we have a four-year-old brought to the ED after a motor vehicle accident, and he's complaining of some abdominal pain, right forearm pain. He's got vitals as above, um, heart rate of 120, blood pressure of 90 or 59, his rest weight is 40, and his SATs are 99%. On physical exam, you notice that he has a bruise over his left chest, his abdomen is soft, he's also got bruising over his right forearm. So appropriately, we are concerned about injuries to his abdomen, thorax, and forearm uh, in this currently stable uh, appearing child. And this is my first question uh, for the audience today. I have a total of two. Um, what I'd like you guys to do is uh, go for yes or no. And the question is, can we image and screen all of his injuries without the use of any X-ray radiation at this point? Okay. So you have about five seconds. Yeah, okay, here we go. Oh, there's more coming in. All right. No. Okay, there's a lot of people that say yes to. But uh, what I'm going to try to do is convince the 57% of you that it is possible, um, or at least it will be in the near future. So uh, now I'll talk you through, I'll walk you through the, uh, the rich history that we have here with the ultrasound. Back uh, in the late uh, 18th century, an Italian Jesuit priest called Lazzaro Spallazzani wondered how bats uh, flew. And more specifically, he wondered how bats could fly so accurately and prey on little insects all in the dark. So he started to experiment on these bats. He first blinded these bats, and he realized that it had no effect on flight. And then he started to uh, experiment with their hearing. He would stuff cotton balls into their ears, and he realized that the bats could not fly at all. So he postulated at that time. It could be that the bat is actually hearing uh, its environment and using the sense of hearing, it could navigate and pick up insects when it needed to prey. When he came up with this idea, uh, he was deemed a heretic by his contemporary uh, colleagues because at that point, so the sense of sight was the most important. Um, and so this stopped Spallazzani from continuing his experiments on bats. Then came along Sven Jekraff, a Dutch biologist, in the beginning of the 19th century. Uh, he followed on from Spallazzani's uh, experiments, and uh, what he postulated was actually, you know what, they could be hearing with their ears, but there are sounds that are being emitted from these bats uh, that are echoing off uh, the environment, and that's how they're picking up um, these, uh, the, the sound waves, and so they're navigating the environment. And so what he did was bind the mouths uh, of uh, bats, and he, he assumed that this would stop them from flying. But actually, what would happen was the bats were flying, but they were just not as accurate in their flight. So they would hit things mid-flight, and they weren't able to prey on the little insects. And so he, he, he thought about the fact that maybe these sounds that are uh, now produced are coming out through the noses of these bats. And it's possible that it's affecting their flight. But then he also asked the question of why we're not able to hear uh, these sounds. And that's where the concept of the ultrasound comes into play. It so happens that human hearing, uh, we can hear up to frequencies of about 20,000. And the bats were producing sounds that were much higher in frequency. Just like the medical ultrasound, we use uh, higher frequencies in the megahertz range. And so we never hear uh, these sounds. In 1930s, however, there were two Harvard graduates, and they made an instrument that could pick up 
on ultrasonic waves. And so it confirmed these two ideas that um, we have uh, in nature animals that would use uh, sounds that we could not hear. And then in the 1880s, the Curie brothers discovered a very important uh, principle, piezoelectricity. They were experimenting on quartz crystals, and they realized that compression of a quartz crystal would generate a charge. But it was also reversible. So if you applied a charge to the quartz crystals, it would vibrate in such a way that it produced sound. And if it could, if it could vibrate so quickly, um, that you would produce ultrasound. And this is something that we use in transducers in the medical ultrasound. But it was not until in 1912 that we started to want to apply this uh, technology um, of piezoelectricity and the concept of ultrasound um, until we had an event happen, a catastrophic uh, event in 1912 when the Titanic sank um, after colliding with an iceberg. It was on its maiden voyage, as we all know, from Britain to North America. And when it sank, it killed about 1,500 people. And there was public inquiry into, in both these countries uh, to try to increase the safety in maritime navigation. And so the concept of sonar was born. And it stood for sound navigation and ranging. But it wasn't until World War I and World War II that the stakes were much higher. This time, we had the Allied and Axis forces in fierce battle over naval superiority. And they were using submarines and anti-submarines. And this is when sonar became more and more sophisticated. This is an excerpt from a uh, naval commander who was on uh, one of these ships, um, the USS Scape. Fortunately, there was sonar. All the time we were submerged, we listened carefully for ship propellers. With everything else quiet in the submarine, the sonar sometimes could pick up Japanese ships miles away. You can get a sense of appreciation here about how important the ultrasound was to them, even in the 1940s. We finally moved uh, the ultrasound from the battlefield into the medical ward. This is a picture uh, showing one of the Dusik brothers. They were Austrian um, scientists that were trying to apply the ultrasound uh, in medicine. And they tried to image the uh, brain using the ultrasound. Um, and you can see this is a pretty complicated apparatus. Uh, the patient actually has to be put in, um, and his head is partially submerged in water. And they, and they um, theorized that they were producing these images on heat-sensitive paper, where the black parts of this, on this paper corresponds to the ventricles uh, in the brain. And so if you had a mass, you would uh, disrupt the black areas. And so you could say that there was an intracranial mass causing compression or mass effect. Unfortunately, there were German scientists uh, who then repeated these experiments with controls. And they found that if you just use the control of a human skull, uh, an empty uh, human skull, you would produce the same images. <laughs> George Ludwig, however, was more successful. He was a naval doctor uh, down in Maryland. And he was exp experimenting on the uses of ultrasound technology between World War I and World War II. And what he initially did was take gallstones out of a dog and put it in meat, um, in slabs of meat. And he would ultrasound. And then he blinded himself. And he got the gallstones to be embedded uh, in the back of these dogs. And he would be, still be able to locate gallstones. Unfortunately, his experiments were not released until after uh, World War II. And you can see here that there's a circle around because it's, it's classified information. Uh, so only in 1949 did people get to know about his experiments. There was another um, scientist called Douglas Howry. Around the same time, he came up with the concept of B-mode scanning. And he built a machine. B-mode scanning is actually an important type of scan that we have in modern day uh, ultrasound. And how we um, made, but the, the difference here is that you can see that the B-mode scanner is huge. You have a, a, a machine as big as a cupboard, and you have this patient who's actually submerged in water. And again, water had to be used to transmit ultrasonic waves. 
he uh, used at that point a uh, vessel his, to contain the water was a gun turret from a B-29 bomber because he was also a military doctor. Eventually, we brought it into a little bit of clinical use here. This is um, John Wilde. He was a British surgeon who moved uh, over to the US. And he was less of a researcher, more of a clinician. So he, he wanted to find out if the ultrasound could help him as an adjunct to diagnose breast cancer. And he was successful with that, and he produced papers. Ian Donnell, a professor from the University of Glasgow, heard about these experiments. And then he started his own uh, successful experimentation where he was using it in his clinical service. He was a surgeon and an obstetrician. He made lots of strides in actually um, locating the first fetus uh, in utero, um, scanning of twins. He could identify the placenta in utero uh, and the position of it, and also volume. He was starting to uh, be able to measure volumes of uh, amniotic fluid. He finally produced a paper with all these different uh, experiments in this uh, paper here in The Lancet. And then it gained the attention of the obstetric um, folk. The Doppler effect is something that we knew for a long time, but it finally got incorporated with the ultrasound around the 1970s. Um, and the cardiologists got interested in this, because now we could measure um, flow and pressure gradients non-invasively. This is a slide that kind of uh, goes through the, um, the different uh, progressions of the ultrasound, initially starting off with li limited experimental use in the 1960s, and then 1970s, all the different medical specialties get to know about the ultrasound. And the radiologists, too, they started applying it uh, for pediatric-specific scans, uh, like py pyloric stenosis and hydronephrosis, when previously we were using intravenous pyelograms to detect hydronephrosis. In the 80s, the ultrasound machine became more portable. So we brought it over the emergency physicians to, to the emergency department to try to use point of care ultrasonography. The American, American College of Emergency Physicians uh, came out with their first course in the ultrasound textbook in the 90s. And only in 2000 um, did the ASAP produce a policy statement on what they thought the ultrasound curriculum should look like in the EM residency. And only a year ago was it that pediatric emergency fellowships came up with a consensus guidelines on what fellows should be learning um, with the ultrasound during their three-year fellowship. It's no surprise to why we like the ultrasound, at least in pediatrics. There's no radiation. It is painless, and this is important for a child. It's portable, so family members can stay beside them while they're getting scanned. It's relatively cheap, and there's no sedation required. There's also benefits to having it at the bedside. So point of care ultrasound is important to emergency physicians because it decreases cost, decreases length of stay. This is important in the ED. It improves patient satisfaction and decreases scan time. But the road towards bringing it to the bedside wasn't actually easy. Radiologists were appropriately concerned about the use of point of care ultrasound. They wondered how emergency physicians could actually interpret a scan when they didn't have as much training as the radiologists. Um, they also wondered about the quality and standard of care uh, that you would provide, because you'd have different uh, emergency physicians in different academic centers all looking at their point of care ultrasounds and making decisions based on this without any verification of what these scans were actually uh, looking like. And so there was conflict between the emergency services and the radiology services. Um, and even in 2010, this uh, paper down at the bottom still questions the use of bedside ultrasound. And there were prohibitive statements that were coming out from the different uh, bodies that had best <clears throat> interests um, in the use of the ultrasound. 
the American College of Radiology in 1997 actually rejected the idea that there should be an EM ultrasound curriculum. The American College of Cardiologists said that only an echocardiologist should be looking at the heart with an ultrasound. And the American Institute of Ultrasound Medicine in 1997 said that you should have at least three months of ultrasound training and 500 exams um, under your belt before you actually were credentialed uh, to read ultrasound scans. So the next few slides, what I'm going to do is try to convince you how emergency physicians actually read uh, or interpret scans. Uh, and all the claims that I've made about point of care, we're going to have data to support these. So uh, there's an important distinction here between what radiologist does and what the emergency physician does at the bedside. The emergency physician's idea of using the ultrasound scan is to try to make his scan as focused as possible and try to have a binary question to what he's looking at. For example, if he's looking at the abdomen, he, he looks at one organ, if it's the appendix that he's worried about, he tries to answer if the appendix is inflamed. There are comprehensive ultrasounds that happen in the radiology suite with radiologists where they do lots of measurements of different organs like the size of the spleen and kidneys and so on and so forth. And so there have been studies to try to see if emergency physicians using that focused look uh, at the ultrasound, if they could have uh, sensitivities as high as when radiologists read it. And I've highlighted just one here. Uh, this is a study done in Madrid uh, quite recently. It's the first kind of study that actually had emergency physicians learn different modalities just over two days. They were all novices. They had not uh, got experience in the ultrasound yet. They had two days worth of training. Each uh, day they had five hours to learn all these different scans. And then they were allowed to practice for uh, uh, a limited amount of time. Um, and they were recording their, their, their reads against the radio radiology reads. And they looked at the sensitivity. So here we're picking one, the echocardiogram. This emergency physician looked at about 41 scans. And his sensitivities were in the 87%, specificities of 88%, a positive predictive value of 81, and a negative predictive value of 92%. Pretty high for a novice with just two days of um, of practice with the ultrasound. But there were much uh, more studies uh, that were happening uh, from 2000, actually in the 90s already. They were coming out with lots of different studies about emergency physicians, but they all usually looked at just one modality and they would compare it with the radiologist read. And I've highlighted here the sensitivities of these scans. They're all ranging um, from 80s to 90s. Some of them are low, uh, 60%. Most of these studies, however, apply to the adults. And you can see they're looking at things like cholecystitis and DVTs. So now we're going to talk about the cost and the data behind it. The two that I looked at that were quite recent, this one was done in a level one trauma center in Miami. And what they had uh, was look at the cost of uh, evaluating trauma uh, before they used the ultrasound in their algorithms for when uh, they had trauma. So six months prior to having the ultrasound introduced, and then six months after having the ultrasound uh, introduced into the algorithm for evaluating trauma, they saved about $100 per patient in just imaging alone. And they found that it was because their CT scan had dropped so much that this was the main contributor to their savings. And then in 2007 in Newark, New Jersey, there was another study to look at um, how ED uh, clinicians um, functioned in the ED when they were using uh, the ultrasound at the bedside. And so the performance parameters were, were compared between ED physicians that uh, were using ultrasound, and they found out that their performance was higher, at least in terms of patients per hour, that they were seeing. So it improved workflow, at least in the emergency room. Length of stay. 
This is a very recent uh, study that was published in January of 2014, where they compared point-of-care ultrasound to diagnose appendix, uh, appendicitis and radiology ultrasounds to uh, diagnose appendicitis. And this was done in New York City ED, uh, and it's actually a pediatric study. And they found that if you did it at the bedside, you'd save at least two hours. If you chose to go ahead and do a CT scan, you'd increase your time in the ED by uh, uh, three hours. They had secondary outcomes. So there was a subgroup that needed a CT scan, regardless of whether they had point of care or radiology ultrasound. And they could compare what the radiology reads were and what the um, um, uh, emergency physician reads were. And they found that they had similar sensitivities and specificities. They also found that they had decreased their CT use when the ultrasound was used at a, as the point of care in their algorithms. In New Jersey, a similar kind of study was done, but this was looking at pregnant adults and patients that would come in with low abdominal pain, and the emergency physicians would conduct bedside ultrasounds, pelvic ultrasounds, and they would have some patients go off to radiology to get their pelvic ultrasounds. And this is what their data looked like. For those that had bedside ultrasounds, they're in blue, and those that had radiology uh, <coughs> ultrasounds, they're in black. And you can see overall across the board, regardless of nighttime or daytime, you would save time having it done. Uh, at the bedside. Satisfaction. Patient satisfaction is becoming increasingly important. Uh, in the emergency room, patient satisfaction um, can help with follow-up and compliance of the patient with medications. Uh, it also improves physician satisfaction to see your patient satisfied. So that's another reason why we want to keep them um, satisfied. <laughs> there, was, there was a study done in Boston. You had uh, two groups. One was having bedside ultrasounds, and one was ha not having bedside ultrasounds. And they had four questions uh, that they asked people, regardless of what they had. Um, were you happy with the uh, uh, with your stay in the ED? Were you satisfied with your physician skill? Were you ha satisfied with the, uh, the diagnostic imaging that you had that day? And were you even satisfied with your physician to begin with? And guess what? The the ones that are higher, all the red bars, and they are all. Uh, this is on a Likert scale, a five-point Likert scale, and the red bars represent those that had bedside ultrasounds. Then they followed up with the patients that had the ultrasound a week later, and they came up with statements, and the, um, uh, they scored, the, the patients were meant to score these statements. One to two, meaning you did not agree with the statement. Three, you were neutral about it. Four and five, you agreed strongly with these statements. So the first one, uh, did it improve your interaction with the ED dog? Most of them agreed. And you can, you can understand logically, when the emergency physician is by the bedside and he's, and he's scanning, he's, he's talking to his patient, and the patient is presumably asking him questions. So you establish more of a rapport. And so you can imagine that it'll probably have a higher satisfaction score with your ED doctor. Was the ultrasound pa painful? And uh, they didn't agree with that. The ultrasound is not meant to be painful. So thank god that's low. <laughs> the uh, emergency ultrasound improves your overall satisfaction with the ED, and your care is fast and efficient. Most people are neutral to agreeable to this comment. And then S5 is an interesting one. Statement number five, in future, I would like bedside ultrasound. And most people agree to this. So it's interesting that it raises expectations um, of what they should be having in the emergency room. Now we're going to draw your attention back to our patient. I'm going to talk about the clinical applications of the ultrasound. So remember our four-year-old in his MVA accident, uh, he's been complaining of abdominal pain. You're concerned that he has abdominal injury. The first clinical application that I'm going to talk to you about is the FAST scan. For, for those of you who don't know what the FAST scan is, I'm going to give you a quick brief briefing about it. FAST scan stands for Focus Assessment with, sonographic, uh, with Sonography and Trauma. 
And it's a rapid method of assessing intra-abdominal injury. And the rationale is, if you injure your, your organ in the abdomen, it's potentially going to start bleeding. And the ultrasound is meant to pick up intraperitoneal fluid, which is most likely bled from your injury. The ultrasound has been shown to be able to pick up about 150 to 500 cc's um, before it becomes positive, before you actually are able to locate blood. That's actually uh, a problem because 500 cc's in a young pediatric patient is a lot of volume. The way you do it, you do four views. You look at the right upper quadrant, left upper quadrant, the pelvic uh, region, and also at the heart. It takes about three minutes, sometimes two to seven. It started off first in Japan and Europe is when it started to become uh, common over there before it actually arrived in America. And then in 1990s, when the trauma center started to use it, um, it was becoming more prevalent. And it made a huge impact on the use of CT scans. This group in Boston looked at 20,000 patients, patients retrospectively to see how much of an impact fast scans had on the use of CT. And this is what their data looked like. The red line represents CT scan use, and it's over nine years, 2002 to 2011. You can see it slowly creeps down from about 23% down to about three to 4%. And the fast scan, uh, they introduced it around 2004, it starts to pick up, um, and it kind of plateaus around 23, 25%. The blue line represents injury severity score, and this is a way of scoring how badly um, injured your patient is. And you can see that it actually hasn't changed much in those nine years, meaning that they were just as injured in 2002 as 2011, and that wasn't contributing to the lower scans. They also tried to control for physicians' um, uh, pattern of CT use. We were all trying to be more uh, cautious with the use of CT uh, use, and CT head was used as a control here to see what impact it would have. The Canadian CT head rules actually came out around early 2000, and that's probably why they say that their CT head use decreased by a couple of points, but more significantly, the, ultrasound, the um, CT abdomen is decreasing uh, uh, even more than the CT head use. And the FAST scan was picking up. And so they were trying to say that the FAST scan was actually making a huge impact on how people were choosing to uh, use their <coughs> CT abdomen. So assuming our patient has a negative scan, how likely do you think it's ruling out an uh, intra-abdominal injury? That study with 20,000 patients had a sensitivity of 20%. That's really bad. <laughs> you couldn't rely on the, on, the, on the FAST scan. But it had a high specificity, 98%. Other adult studies actually have um, better sensitivity, but it's still low, 60 to 80%. So why is it that when the FAST was introduced, CT abdomen was starting to go down? And they wondered if it was falsely reassuring clinicians. This is an open area of study right now. The Cochrane Review says that in uh, 2013, there is insufficient evidence for you to actually be using the ultrasound for intra-abdominal injury. Pediatric FAST. This was a 2007 meta-analysis, and it kind of reflects the same data that they had in the adults. Sensitivity was low, too, 66%. And when you started to include, uh, include intra-abdominal uh, solid organ injury, which is something that the FAST is not meant to do, but if you looked at that, your sensitivity decreased even further. Uh, to 50%. And so there are talks about how you could increase the sensitivity, and some people talk about how you can include it in a scoring system where you would use ancillary tests, including your exam and your uh, FAST scan, and together you could you could stratify which patient would need a CT abdomen and, and who didn't, or who you could monitor. And then some people are looking at uh, the problems that you have with false negative ultrasound scans and what it actually means to a patient. 
And that study with the 20,000 uh, patients, the, the group that just got ultrasound scans, presumably, presumably they were actually missing a lot of intra-abdominal injury. They didn't have any uh, more increased morbidity or mortality. And there are other studies that are just looking at that, and they still haven't found any. And it could be that maybe the FAST scan is actually not picking up uh, lower grade injuries to solid organs. Now I'm going to talk to you about the second uh, application that we have. So the possibility of a pneumothorax in our patient is quite high. He has a bruise over his chest and he was involved in a uh, motor vehicle accident. So this is my second question of the, of the talk. Is chest x-ray instead of ultrasound better at ruling out a pneumothorax in the setting of trauma? Perfect. So chest x-ray is not better at ruling out uh, pneumothorax. That's actually true. Um, and there's data behind it. Over here, you see a, a chest x-ray uh, that shows a, a pneumothorax on the left side. And, um, and this is actually a normal ultrasound scan that does not have a, a pneumothorax. So they, they came up with this concept called the eFAST, which is an extended FAST scan, where you include FAST and then you go up to the thorax and you try to evaluate to see if there's a pneumothorax. There was a meta-analysis done in 2013, and it distilled down 600 studies to about 13 studies. Um, they were all prospective ones that had ultrasound versus chest x-ray, and CT was used as the gold standard. And most, most of these studies were actually done by emergency physicians, and some by surgeons and radiologists. The pool sensitivity was 80% to detect a pneumothorax uh, with the ultrasound, uh, and 40% with the chest x-ray. Both were really specific. If you did subgroup analysis on the emergency physicians, they, are, they had a couple of points higher than, uh, than 80%. The ultrasound, when you do a fast, e-fast, is only two to five minutes, they found, compared to a chest x-ray that takes 10 to 15 minutes to arrive at the trauma bay. And actually, this was the third meta-analysis in a space over seven years, because there was so much data coming out about the use of ultrasound and pneumothoraxes. And they all agree that the uh, sensitivity of the ultrasound is much higher. And so for those of you thinking, hey, it's all about trauma here, there's actually medical uses for the ultrasound too. Uh, in the chest, at least, pneumonia is a big deal uh, in children. It's a leading cause of death uh, worldwide. But three quarters of those that get uh, pneumonia actually don't have any access to radiology. And the ultrasound could be useful here. There was a study done in, a in two pediatric EDs and they looked at uh, lung ultrasound to detect a pneumonia versus chest x-ray as a reference standard. Uh, the, the pediatric physicians here had about one hour of training, 30 minutes of didactic, and 30 minutes of practical uh, hands-on experience. And they found that they had a sensitivity of 92% and a specificity of 91%. What's more interesting is that the ultrasound had some false positive because the chest x-ray hadn't picked up uh, on the pneumonia. But actually, these 12 out of the of the 13 clinically did not improve until they started off uh, antimicrobials on these patients, and then they would improve. So clinically, you could say they actually had pneumonias. And the reason being, the ultrasound is actually really good at picking up really small areas of consolidation and bronchograms that the chest x-ray was missing. So if you included the 12, the specificity would go up even higher. Adult literature had data about ultrasound versus CT scanning, which is even more sensitive, and they found that um, the ultrasound had sensitivities and specificities of a similar uh, value to the ones here. What about his forearm? He's been complaining of pain there and he's got a bruise. He may have had a fracture. 
Fracture epidemiology here in the ED is pretty important. Lots of patients get injured, they come into the ED, uh, and they're worried that they may have a fracture. X-ray is our first line at this point. 10 to 50% of those, however, that get um, uh, X-rays will end up having a fracture, and there's potential that there's about 90 to 50% that don't need an X-ray because they don't have a fracture. This is where the ultrasound could come in. In a systematic review in 2013, they looked at eight studies. Six of them were pediatric specific. And they, most of these physicians had about one hour of training. And uh, their outcomes were to look at the sensitivity and specificity uh, of the ultrasound versus the standard of reference, which is what's uh, chest X, uh, sorry, an X-ray of the bone. And that's what a fracture looks like on the ultrasound. The white represents the cortex of the bone. And you can see over there, that's a break. It's almost pretty similar to what a chest, uh, sorry, an X-ray of a bone may look like. They had high sensitivities, 90 to 96% for picking up a fracture, and a specificity of 70 to 90%. The problem was the ultrasound was not picking up fractures around the joint. It was confusing to look at a joint space and look at a fracture around periarticular areas. And so you could potentially increase your sensitivity if you just excluded um, trying to look at fractures close to a joint. And then again, similar to the pneumonia, some of the times you were getting positive scans with the ultrasound, and the X-rays would not uh, see a fracture. But then when they repeated X-rays in some of these studies, they would find callus formations uh, a week or so later down the road. And it, so it, the, the, the question was if the reference standard was actually specific enough to pick up on these X-rays, on these fractures. And then there's this use of CM fluoroscopy in the ED. Right now, when we try to reduce a fracture, we, we use low-dose uh, radiation continuously to try to see if you're aligning the bones. That's a lot of radiation for a child if you're, if you're, doing, uh, if you're taking time to reduce this fracture. You could actually use the ultrasound. And there are studies that look at this, and it's just as effective as CM fluoroscopy in looking at the alignment of the bone. Back to our case. Now you're worried about his hemodynamics. His heart rate's going up from 150 to 180, and his blood pressure is starting to tank from 90s to 70s. There was a consensus statement uh, in 2010 with ASAP and ASC, previously a body that was averse to having emergency physicians use the ultrasound um, on the heart. They came up with this focused uh, ultrasound scan where you would look uh, at the heart, primarily three areas <coughs> of the heart. You'd look at the pericardial sac, the global cardiac function, uh, and the IVC size. And the reason we look at the IVC size is because it gives us an idea of the volume of the patient. Then they combined focus with fast scanning. Uh, and they got this rush exam. And it's primarily used in adults. It stands for rapid ultrasound and shock. And you could try to differentiate between the different types of shock. So in adults, you would have uh, distributive or septic shock, hypovolemic, obstructive, or cardiogenic. In, although it occurs in pediatrics, it's not as common. And so you might just want to look at the IVC parameter if you wanted to get an idea of volume status. There was a study done in Yale in 2007 um, that found that you're looking at the IVC aorta ratio and comparing it to your reference standard, which is your clinical assessment of a patient's dehydration, you would have similar sensitivity. Uh, but the extra benefit here is that the IVC, the IVC aorta ratio could give you a an idea of how well the patient was responding to an intervention that you uh, that you had. So if you bolus this patient or you had oral hydration, when you rescan them, they'd have a change in their parameters, and you could make an estimate of how well your your interventions were working. 
So there are lots of uses in the in the ED. And the next three slides are the use of it in the pediatric uh, emergency department. And it was a consensus guidelines that came up uh, with what we should know. I've talked to you about some of it already. The ones in green are the ones that we've touched a little bit on. Um, and the one in yellow here, it's interesting. We could use, they're saying that you can use the ultrasound uh, and look at the diameter of the optic nerve and, and get a sense of what a, a patient's intracranial pressure uh, could be like. And then we could use it for procedural uh, use. Interesting ones here highlighted in yellow. Sometimes it's tough to do a lumbar puncture, especially when you can't find landmarks. And the ultrasound could be very useful here. ET tube placement, that's really interesting. We always go for x-rays, but you could actually use the ultrasound here as well. So all these are what a fellow in pediatric emergency medicine is supposed to get in three years. It's actually quite a lot. And this is the last uh, section of my talk, uh, the future of point-of-care ultrasound. There's several factors that will dictate how the ultrasound goes, and most of it we already know, radiation, financing, the ultrasound technology itself, education and research. And I'm going to go through each one a little bit uh, in detail. LRA is as low as reasonably achievable. It's a philosophy that we have to try to radiate as little bit as of, as of our patients as we can. In pediatrics, the ultrasound is very secure. It doesn't have any radiation at all. And if you started to use it for first-line investigations, for example, now we know that it's really sensitive in fractures and pneumonias, you could potentially avoid having to x-ray uh, our patients. Economic drivers, about 10% of healthcare costs is due to imaging use. The ultrasound is also uh, has a strong position here. It's cheaper um, to have a point-of-care ultrasound and have it read by the emergency physician. The machine itself costs less. Some studies are looking at how long it takes to get a return of investment. And in a trauma, a busy trauma center in ED, it takes about one to two years. Miniaturization. It's also it's made a huge impact already in the way uh, we use the ultrasound. It started off in huge rooms before it got put onto wheels, and then it came small on wheels, and now it's a size in some places. Um, this is actually true. This is a, a mobile phone uh, sized ultrasound model. And with this, you could start using it outside of the hospital, and people are talking about it using being used by EMTs. This is mainly, mainly in adult literature so far, and it's mainly in Europe. And they're using it. Uh, to try to triage patients. For example, they could do fast scans in the field, and they could decide if they need to go to a trauma center or not. They could make decisions about whether a patient needs to be resuscitated, depending on whether it's cardiac standstill uh, in the field. And then there's ET tube placement that you could use. Right now, there's no imaging uh, for an EMT who, who has an, who's intubated a patient, um, and it could potentially stop them from second guessing and reintubating. With the miniaturization of the uh, ultrasound and our improved telecommunications, you could start using it uh, as a tele-ultrasound um, image. There are two studies that I looked at. Um, these were actually introductions to how we could use tele-ultrasound. They're pretty interesting. This one was The first one on the top was done in a ski resort in uh, the Rocky Mountains. Um, and someone who's not um, an expert in the ultrasound was being directed about how to use the ultrasound by an expert. Uh, and he used the iPhone as a way to tether um, the communications. Then there's another uh, scan, a fast scan, that was done in space, on a space station. And ground center was actually commanding the, uh, the uh, astronaut on how to actually use the ultrasound. And uh, it's interesting, this study is trying to say that there's no a barrier to distance when you use the ultrasound with today's uh, technology. 
It took them about two seconds to get their images from space. Advances in ultrasound technology. So there's this a new type of study called a contrast enhanced ultrasound, and uh, it's been used in Europe for quite some time, but the FDA only uh, approved it in 2013 uh, in the US, and so there are more studies coming out with that. That is meant to actually increase your sensitivity um, of the fast scan, because now you'll be able to look at solid organ injury. As increased resolution uh, goes up in our ultrasound uh, machines, that could also potentially help us with looking at injuries. And then there's 3D ultrasound. Right now, there's no use of the 3D ultrasound in the emergency room, but you could think of potential applications that it might have. <clears throat> so um, to, your, to your left is a normal uh, uh, scan of, with the ultrasound and a spleen with some injuries. But when you have contrast in it, it becomes so much more apparent. That's on your right side. And this is a 3D ultrasound of a baby. But if you think about its use in emergency medicine, imagine fractures and the areas that we were having problems with around the joint. If you had 3D uh, views of it, you may be able to, to look at it uh, with higher sensitivities. Education and training is probably our, our biggest problems that we need to try to get on top of. Right now, there's three residencies with requirements for the use of ultrasound. There's about 90 adult uh, medicine ultrasound fellowships out there, and only four, four PEDS-specific ones. They're all not ACGME accredited. Um, and currently, in the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Fellowship, there is, uh, there is no need by the, uh, the ACGME has come up with uh, no requirements for, for fellows to learn the ultrasound. So more training. We'll also need to train our EMT staff. And medical school uh, curriculums uh, have started to think about introducing the ultrasound. Ohio State actually has come up with a lot of literature about using, introducing limited care ultrasound through the four years. And they hope that the students will then be able to apply it in their clinical uh, rotations. The biggest barriers to all of this will be funding and training. So you notice from my talk, a lot of the research here is uh, done in adult literature. Um, and so we'll need to try to close that gap. Uh, and I think it will, um, especially once ECGME starts to make it mandatory, mandatory across the board for us to have uh, an ultrasound curriculum. Change isn't easy. This is a diagram of Rene Lenac, who was a French physiologist who was trying to show you how hard it is to um, listen to a patient's lung uh, and the inherent uh, difficulties you have. This is what we used to do before the introduction of the stethoscope, which he did. And the first primitive stethoscope was a single tube. Um, and a uh, British physician was asked to make the preface of his treatise on the stethoscope. This is what he had to say. That it will ever come into general practice, I am extremely doubtful because its general application requires much time and requires a good bit of trouble both to the patient and practitioner. <laughs> How interesting that he'd say that when the stethoscope is such an integral part of our exam. So I believe that, at least in pediatric emergency medicine, the ultrasound is going to be a pretty important tool, probably just as important as the stethoscope. And there's a potential for it to actually creep into practice for the general pediatricians. That's all I have. Thank you very much. The clinical x-ray? I do not. And oh, here. Yeah. Hey. So you are indeed ready to walk into the hallowed home of 
I'm sorry, ischemic patients lung for pneumothorax and pneumonia, or do you send them for a chest X-ray and go see other two other three other patients? That's kind of the trade-off that I think you have to address in the Western world. So, no, so Terry will clarify this radiology as well. I just had one little comment. This is uh, very very interesting, and I'm so glad that I was able to attend. Um, the one comment I have, a lot of your studies said that ultrasound was cheaper than CT, and that is definitely true. But ultrasound is not cheaper than an x-ray. And right. Bob and I have both worked in Haiti, and although they have chest x-rays, they have one antiquated ultrasound machine that no one knows how to use. <laughs> and it's such a bad machine, I tried to scam a little girl for her lung because she had a bad-looking chest x-ray. It, it's not helpful. So there are certain instances where you just have to look at what you have and what's available. But I think that you know using ultrasound as an extension of a physician's hand is is a very great tool. We just need to make sure that um, there are some constraints in place in terms of what we're seeing and what to do with it. And yeah, and I have more of a similar comment more than a question. That um, and and this is you, know, you had up there the list of the organizations who are opposed to letting somebody else use it. <laughs> but but it's worth pointing out that one of those was the cardiology world, who previously had to go up against the radiologists <laughs> to right to have to say that cardiology could do ultrasound. Same thing with MRI. So now in, at Boston Children's, the cardiologists own the MRI machine for doing cardiac MRI, took it out of the radiologist's hands. So I mean, it's going to go that direction. But then, uh, and so then the real challenge of it, I think, is to, to do that correctly, right? And um, the worry is that bad information is worse than no information. And and when you put ultrasound out there with a bunch of people, and this is what worries the cardiologists to make them say, we don't want anyone else using our machine, right? Um, is if you put it out there and people don't actually know how to use it effectively, and so it's issues about knowing when the sensitivity is important, when the specificity is important, knowing actually the right indications for it's good for this specific thing, and, it, and you have to understand the limitations of it just like the stethoscope, right? The stethoscope is really good at some things, and it's it's not good at everything. It's really good at innocent murmurs. It's not very good at severity of AS for that we need ultrasound. So it's just, you have to really be careful about just jumping into it and saying it's great for everything. Uh, so the sense that I get with the fast scan is that you're able to rule out a lot of injuries that prevent people from going to CAT scan. Right. But I'm wondering if, has has there been any effect on the patients where you find something and then can go and do your intervention without subsequently going? Because my experience yes. anecdotally is in the ED here, if we see something on the fast scan, then they get their abdominal CT, then they go to whatever right. medical versus surgical intervention, as opposed to going ultrasound, oh, we see something, now we know what to do about it. They still seem to go to the CAT scan. Yeah. You know, there are some algorithms that actually just use the fast scan, where if you are hemodynamically unstable and the fast scan becomes positive, you take them to the so there are times when we just use the fast scan. 
I'm wondering more about those kids that have the liver laceration that does not need operation, that need to be observed in the ICU overnight. That like so many, the vast majority of them do not get operative intervention, but they still get a CAT scan. They get their ultrasound and ED, then they get their CAT scan to grade their liver lac, and then they come to the PICU. I think that's a reasonable thing. Get one CAT scan baseline, see what's going on with solid organs, and then just call them the ultrasound. And I also think, um, if I can just interject, if we had contrast-enhanced ultrasound where we were actually seeing blood flow um, and Doppler, we might get to the point where we could grade a liver laceration in a pediatric patient. But the downside is we don't want to miss something that we could intervene on and save a child's life. Yeah, I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just a wonder no, that it, it can come yeah, to that point. Absolutely. I'm kind of curious. Why did you choose this topic? <laughs> and number two, you headed to Downstate, right? Yes. And you're doing fellowship at Downstate. So what, what is their training? What do they do for their fellows down there? Uh, what, did you find out before you decided to go there? Yeah. yeah. So the first question, I actually planned to going to a pediatric emergency ultrasound fellowship post my pediatric emergency medicine fellowship because I really like the ultrasound um, and I think it has a lot of uh, potential. The second about SUNY Downstate, they actually um, were part of the team that came up with the consensus guidelines on what PEM fellows should have uh, as training in, in their fellowship and they have an, uh, an emergency ultrasound fellowship in-house as well. So it was a good fit uh, and that's why I chose this topic. So, I guess to pick up a first question, did you yeah. get exposed to this in your uh, lucky rotation Miami children? No, Miami children, they didn't have any emergency mm -hmm. ultrasound being used in their facility. Yeah. So, I guess, how did, did we do it here? How did you? Where did you stumble upon this? Uh, you mean, like, why did I choose this? Yeah, sure. yeah because, because that's what I, I hope to do after my... This is really... This is like... So you wouldn't know that in, in the fields that don't use ultrasound or in emergency or urgent situations, but this is a real cutting-edge topic so, uh, that's national. This is a great field to go in. I, I have something really interesting. So in ICU, certainly, of all the technology that I've seen, and I, I'd like to say I'm going to this out long, but, um, Ultrasound has, has changed sort of ICU care the most out of anything I've seen, as far as it's really the standard of care when placing lines, um, and certainly some of the other things that you, you've talked about. We use it fairly frequently, and I think the expectation is to be using it more and more and to be getting better at it. I think that um, one of the ways I know that we have been exposed is when we do PEDS rounds, we talk about how could we image this problem, and we've talked in the um, PICU and in the ICN about bringing the ultrasound machine up there to look at a thorax, you know, when we have a 30-weeker, um, and using that for more experience, but it's... It's difficult because we don't have the probe small enough to fit between baby's ribs. For the portable machines, they're technological and monetary issues. I have a comment more than a question, too, um, which is to um, sort of go off of Norm and Terry's comments about the education piece. I think that 
um, once we figure out what it's actually useful for and not, which is, I think, an important part. The training issues are really challenging um, with, um, with you know, new technology and all of those kinds of things. And I think that what, what you're doing, the approach you're taking and doing additional training in order to be able to use it effectively is the way we have to go. Because what's happening in medical education is that, um, okay, well, now we want all the ED people to learn how to do these point of care ultrasound. Um, so forget about the physical exam part. I think you know, the comment about it being an extension of your hand, I think, is so critical. Um, and the, uh, the physical exam pieces, it, as we add more and more and more technology, we lose that physical exam piece. And so I think it's important for all of us as educators to remember to um, go back to the fundamental physical exam before jumping to the technology. So um, I don't know if Bob wants me to say this. Is Mike Dubron here? Mike has done a little bit of his own, he's listening, has done a little bit of his own training. We, we have a module, we have some, some uh, an educational module, I believe, in radiology or in some department here at the institution for gaining some training uh, on a, a bedside ultrasound or a point of care ultrasound technique. Mike is aware of it, and so I think there is some training opportunities even in-house with web-based modules, and I don't know if Terry or Bob are involved in, in training people. There are certainly CME courses that you can attend around the country to scale ultrasound that I'm aware of. So it's, it's available to do formal training lines. You, you set the standard because you gave a talk, and then you barely needed to answer any questions. <laughs> 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 